From KHOL, this is Jackson Unpacked, our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Unfortunately, I have to open today's show by sharing that this is my last episode of Jackson Unpacked. We launched this show in February 2021, and I want to thank each and every one of you who's been listening since then, whether you're a KJWL diehard or discovered the station more recently. I'm moving on to a position with NPR, but I'm sticking around the Tetons, so I hope our paths cross soon. Jackson Unpacked is going to be coming out occasionally until the newsroom gets back up to fully staffed, but I'm really excited to introduce you to KJWL's new reporter, Hannah Mersbach, at the end of today's show. Also coming up, Teton Gravity Research co-founder Steve Jones discusses the company's deep roots in Jackson Hole. This place, it's still flying back home into the Tetons. It, it just never gets old. It's just got a magic energy to it. Plus, how a hidden cave in Wyoming is helping researchers better understand climate change. If we know what the conditions were like in the past, then we can compare those and see like, okay, yes, the models are giving us accurate indications of what's happened in the past, and that gives scientists more confidence. But first, some election coverage. The local housing, climate, and social justice organizations, Shelter JH, Sunrise JH, and Act Now JH, hosted a candidate forum in late August, featuring the hopefuls for town and county offices in November. KHOL's Hannah Mersbach has a recap of the forum, which was largely dominated by a single topic, housing. The races for local elected offices are heating up for the upcoming general election on November 8th. Seven candidates are running to fill three partisan positions on the Teton County Board of Commissioners, and four candidates are running for two nonpartisan seats on the Jackson Town Council. Despite their differences, most of the incumbents and challengers say it's one issue in particular that's motivating them to run. Those of you that know me know that housing is what really pushed me into this arena. When I started this work 30 plus years ago, it is about recognizing that we are a community first, a resort second. That was town council candidates Devin Veeman and Arne Jorgensen. Jorgensen is the town's current vice mayor, and Veeman narrowly lost her first bid for the council in 2020. They're among the many candidates proposing housing solutions like amending zoning restrictions, lobbying the state legislature for additional funding, and limiting short-term rentals. Incumbent counselor Jonathan Schechter is also in that camp. We need to identify all the places where housing makes sense and build as much affordable housing as we possibly can because that's the way that we maintain our sense of community. Other candidates champion a more hands-off approach. Whether speaking about affordable housing or climate change, council candidate Kat Ruckert emphasized government deregulation when addressing the crowd gathered at the August 30th forum. So if you guys have the money and the ability and the drive, I want to get out of your way as a town council person and let you thrive and make this community better the way that you guys see fit. I want to put the onus back on you, the power back on you, and the responsibility back on you. At the same time, many candidates say building more workforce housing in the town of Jackson is the best way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In 2019, 64% of all emissions in Teton County came from transportation. So, county commissioner hopefuls say creating more workforce housing in Jackson would help by limiting the number of commuters driving from Idaho. 
Political newcomers Wes Gardner and Peter Long also pointed fingers at current elected officials for not doing more on housing already. The market's going to do what the market is allowed to do, and you can't blame the market for that. What you can do is blame us for that. Ultimately, we can't say that we're for affordable housing, that we're for keeping our workforce here, and continually vote against it. And so we need to start by keeping our workforce here in the Valley. Other Board of Commissioners candidates, like Tom Seegerstrom and incumbents Mark Newcomb and Luther Probst, say it's more complicated than that. Probst currently serves as the board's vice chair. We can say that we are for workforce housing and vote against housing that is going to be second homes, that is going to be luxury homes, that is going to be for remote workers who are not part of this community. Inequality in Teton County was another big topic of discussion at the forum, and moderators were quick to point out the lack of diverse candidates. All of the county board of commissioners candidates are white men. The town council candidates include two women, though everyone in that race is also white. Two candidates of color didn't make it through the primaries. However, some candidates proposed diversifying local government by translating all town materials into Spanish, among other measures. Here's council candidate V. Min again. And what I can tell you is, I promise to listen. I promise to take your experiences and what you have as a reality and hear it and do something about it. That is what being in one of these seats is all about. Commissioner candidate Brendan Cronin added that while he can't bring racial diversity, he can bring economic diversity as someone who lives in workforce housing. I'm hoping to represent my generation, right? I moved here, I lived in my car four different times to make it work. My dad's an electrician, my mom's a nurse. I'm about as blue collar as it gets. You need some more economic diversity in this community. Yet another candidate for the Board of Commissioners, Casey Matioski, said he's running for future generations. So I have four grandchildren. I want to see them come back here and live. I want to see your grandchildren, your children come back here and live. And I think if we start now and we act as a community, we can get this done. A full recording of the forum is available on Sheltered JH's website under the Election 2022 tab. Early voting for Wyoming's general election starts on Friday, September 23rd. Wyomingites can vote in person at various locations on Election Day or drop off ballots before then at the Teton County Administration Building on Willow Street. All mail-in ballots must arrive by Election Day. Hannah Mersbach, KHOL News. KHOL is also helping educate voters as one of the media partners for candidate forums being hosted by the Wyoming League of Women Voters and Teton County Library throughout late September and October. The next forums are coming up on September 28th and 29th, featuring the candidates for Jackson Town Council, Teton County Board of Commissioners, and House Districts 16 and 23. A full schedule of the forums is available on the library's website at tclib.org. Formations in a Wyoming cave that are hundreds of thousands of years old are helping scientists better understand the climate crisis. 
The research is paired with information gathered from neighboring lake sediment to help inform climate modeling. Next, Rocky Mountain Community Radio's Maeve Conran speaks with reporter Emily Benson, who wrote about the paleoclimate research being done in the Cowboy State in the September edition of High Country News. So the cave that I got to go visit with these researchers is uh, east of Cody, Wyoming, but they actually are studying caves and also lake sediments throughout the western United States. So they're trying to learn something about um, past climate or paleoclimate records um, throughout the western U.S. So so what they are doing was collecting cave formations, uh, speleothems, or you might call them stalagmites, from this particular cave. And what you can do with those cave formations is they're, they're kind of like um, tree rings, how you can look at tree rings, and that can tell you something about the climate in the past. Um, but tree ring records actually don't go back that far, um, partly because wood rots, and so there's just not that long of a record. Um, but cave formations can go back hundreds of thousands of years. And the particular cave that that I got to tag along to is called Titan Cave. And some of the uh, cave formations from that cave have been dated to 400,000 years old. So that's pretty old. But the period of time that these researchers are interested in is about 125,000 years ago. And that is a time called the last interglacial period. And that's, um, that's the last time when the earth was probably a little bit hotter than it is right now, kind of near the low end of the estimates for the end of this century. So the idea is that researchers, um, if they understand a little bit more about the conditions of the earth during that time, that that can help us understand a little bit more about some of the, the future conditions that we might see in the coming decades. I suppose many people will be wondering when we are living through so many of the obvious impacts of the climate crisis right now, and there is endless data available about what is currently happening to the earth because it's warming. Why do we need to have that information from hundreds of thousands of years ago to help inform us? Like, What is the relationship and what is the need to look at some of that data that they're gathering from the cave? How is that helping to inform the science being done about what's happening right now? You know, people are interested in in figuring out what's happening right now, but it's also really, really important to get projections for for what we're expecting is going to happen in the coming decades and centuries. And partly that's because the change in climate is affecting things like flooding and droughts. And um, if we think about flooding for a minute, you know, when somebody builds a bridge or a road, they build that to, um, to be able to withstand a certain level of flooding. But with climate change, those kinds of floods are getting bigger and more intense. And so we need to know how strong do we need to build our bridges? How strong do we need to build our roads and things like that? So to get some idea about things like temperature and rainfall and the kind of flooding that we can expect, people use climate models to project out what we can expect to happen. Um, but one of the things, one of the things we need to do to make sure that those climate models are accurate is that um, researchers need to test them. 
And so the way that they test them is they take some information about what the earth was like in the past. And if they know what the relative temperature and changes in rainfall were like in the past, then they can plug in the initial conditions, um, things like CO2 levels or sea level into the model and see, okay, what kind of changes in rainfall or temperature does that predict? And if we know what the conditions were like in the past, then we can compare those and see like, okay, yes, the models are giving us accurate indications of what's happened in the past. And that gives scientists more confidence that the projections that the models are spitting out are reasonable and that we can have confidence in them for what they're saying the coming decades might be like. In addition, it seems that some of the data is just startling to the point that we, we can't ignore the reality. And I think one of the scientists in your piece was quoted about how hot the planet is right now and how many tens of thousands of years it's been since we've seen this type of heat measurements being recorded. When we have data like that, that it's, it's very hard to continue to deny what's actually happening. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So one of the scientists that I interviewed, you know, I, I was asking her, why is it important to do this kind of work? And that's exactly what she said. She said, it's really important to know what things like temperature and rainfall were like in the past, because that puts the present moment in context and shows us really how extreme the present is. And the rate of changes that we're seeing now is really um, startling when you look at that in a geologic timescale and compared to geologic history. Well, people can read Emily Benson's article, How a Hidden Cave Can Help Scientists Understand the Climate, in this month's High Country News in the print edition, but also online at hcn.org. Emily, thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks so much for having me. That story came to us from Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KHOL. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm news director Kyle Mackey, and this is our podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. You can listen to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, the latest ski and snowboard film from Teton Gravity Research called Magic Hour premiered in Teton Village on Saturday, September 17th. It was part of TGR's Far Out Fest. K-12 Music and Community Affairs Director Jack Catlin spoke to TGR co-founder Steve Jones ahead of the event. Their conversation was recorded live in the K-12 studios, and you can hear an extended version on our website, 891khol.org. Known around the world for their award-winning films, popular lifestyle brand, and lively events, sports media company Teton Gravity Research has been wowing fans and audiences for almost 30 years. TGR's co-founder and president Steve Jones joins us now in the KHOL studios. Welcome in, Steve. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Of course. So watching your videos, doing my research, I came across one about how essential Jackson Hole is to TGR. You said on film, it's part of our fiber and DNA. What is it about this place that drew you here initially? 
And I also wanted to know how do the Tetons still inspire you to this day? You know, having traveled all around the world, I still feel like this is one of the most special places for me personally on the planet. It struck a chord right away when I came in and saw the Tetons, like I'm sure that it did to most people. There's an energy here that for me is kind of undefinable, but I, Todd and I always talk about how like, I, I don't think TGR would have become TGR in a ski town in say Colorado or Vermont. This community and the pride in this community and the energy and the passion here and like the creativity that comes from this valley off of the mountains. It's just such a unique, special place. And and again, that's having gone to many, many spectacular places around the world. But this place, it's still flying back home into the Tetons. It, it just never gets old. It's mm-hmm. just got a magic energy to it. What advice would you give to someone that may be listening, a young kid that's got aspirations to become a filmmaker but just getting his start, like what would your words of wisdom be for him? Um, you know, I think the most important thing is if you're really driven and passionate about it, there's going to be ups and downs. Just don't give up. Keep asking questions. Keep knocking on doors. I mean, there's people that end up at TGR that had maybe started knocking on our door five, six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's all about timing and mm-hmm. perseverance. You know, if you're passionate about it, I truly believe you're going to get there. So your latest film... Magic Hour celebrates those fleeting moments where the light is just right and you're in a blissful zone of thrilling adventure and magical experience. I'm sure many of the listeners out there that love Jackson can attest to that. I loved this quote from one of the athletes in the film, Nick McNutt. He said, Magic Hour is where everything just clicks. It's just nonstop high fives and stoke. Can you tell us about the film and what went into making it? So I think that's a well put by McNutt in the sense of we always talked about the magic hour, you know, lots of people associate it with that first hour of light in the day and the last hour of light in the evening. And it's really much broader than that in the sense of it's these magic moments, right? Like where we've been up on a ridge and all of a sudden the clouds start to break and you see the sparkly crystals and those things and they are fleeting, but they're special. The ones that really make you out there that Anybody who spent time in the mountains has felt like those kind of goosebump moments, right, Mm -hmm. where um, everything just comes together. And so that was the inspiration for this film was like if we could just try to encapsulate that and put those super special moments and that feeling, which is really almost impossible to do, Mm -hmm. except for when (laughs) you're actually out there in the field, but put that into a 60 minute film. We just felt like it was something that we've all experienced and something that's really special and that everybody who's spent time in the mountains can relate to. Well, finally, Steve, wrapping up here with TGR paving the way, where do you see the future of action sports media going? You know, I mean, that's a great question. Media evolves so fast. One of the most challenging things for us and things that keeps us on our toes is really paying attention to that. And I don't know. I don't know that I'm qualified enough to answer that question other than that we continue to try to evolve with it, whether it's short form content, social content, feature films. We're seeing a lot of um, these action and adventure sports really hit into the mainstream. Like we just did a, a four film series with HBO Max, HBO Originals that we're super fired up about. You know, you guys have seen Jimmy Chen and what happened with Free Solo winning an Emmy and, and that blowing up. So I'd like to see, I know there's so many great stories here and it, it's more than... Um, We've always thought it's more than these irreverent risk takers. There's a intellectual component to it as well as, you know, stories about 
human perseverance and overcoming challenges and things like that. And I think that we as a collective, that's TGR and, and many of our colleagues in the space have really finally started to break into that space. And, and that's super exciting. Well, thanks, Steve Jones. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us here at KHOL. This coverage is funded in part with an Arts for All grant provided by the town of Jackson and Teton County. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Our last story today is a conversation with Cage Wells' new reporter, Hannah Mersbach. Hannah is a successful former freelance journalist who's moving to Jackson from Bend, Oregon. We chatted by Zoom to talk about what's drawing her to the Tetons and what she's excited to report on. Hey, Hannah, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, of course. Well, welcome to Cage Well officially. We're so excited to have you on board. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the kind of journalism you've been doing based in Oregon? Yeah, I've been working as a freelance journalist for the last couple of years. I've been writing everything from magazine features to breaking news um, for local publications, but also some national ones. My reporting has largely been around housing and environmental issues, a lot of state and local politics covering like the recent Oregon legislature session. And I also in 2020 did a fellowship through Oregon Public Broadcasting, um, the NPR Next Generation uh, radio workshop. So that really got me excited about doing more audio stuff. That's a great fellowship program. Also housing, environment, local politics. You are a natural fit for this reporting position here in Jackson. One specific story I wanted to ask you about reporting is you reported a big piece for High Country News that was about how Oregon is converting hotels into homes for wildfire survivors, and that was republished by The Atlantic and Mother Jones. Can you tell us about your experience reporting that and what was probably such an intense story? Yeah, so we we went into that and we wanted to cover this initiative that um Oregon had passed. They were buying up hotels around the state and housing people in them, particularly people experiencing homelessness and wildfire survivors. So it really just started with that. And we wanted to pick a specific hotel, go into it, see what that looks like, um, housing wildfire survivors. So we went down to one in Southern Oregon um, where there had just been huge fires in 2020. So many people displaced and mostly people that are Latinx um, because there's a huge farm worker and immigrant population there. So it really just started with that. We showed up at the hotel and we found these great families to talk to who had been um, just, you know, living in their cars. You know, there's one family who is almost living in like the back of a pickup truck. Um, and they finally were having this place that was, you know, a little bit closer to home. But it really that story still just exposed the lack of the lack of like consistent government relief efforts. And, you know, the fact that these people still like a year after this fire were still like the best thing that they had so far was living in a hotel, which, you know, is is a step. But um, it, it really just exposed, like, you know, all the gaps in services that that really exist. 
Right. Well, it might be for different reasons, but I know many folks in Jackson know something about living in hotels as well. Definitely. So what drew you to Jackson and this reporting position with KHOL? Well, for one, I have visited Jackson a couple of times, love all of the the outdoor opportunities there are. I'm a big climber and skier and, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, the place is really drawing me in. Um, and I had also been following KHOL for a while. I'd seen that it'd been growing as a station. I really liked the kind of reporting it was doing and could just really see myself in that spot. And, you know, I wanted to take a step away from freelancing and really get, I, I felt that I couldn't really get that experience in audio while freelancing. So I'm really looking to dial in on those those radio skills through this job. And what are you most excited to report on here? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is is housing. Um, you know, I've already been covering a lot of stuff related to housing, like what the city council is doing with short term rentals. Um, other than that, I'm, you know, really excited to get out in the field, be covering everything, you know, have assignments with Game and Fish, shout out them and what they're doing. Yeah, I definitely love getting out with Game and Fish, too. It's been some of my favorite reporting in my time here. So you mentioned you're a big uh, skier and climber. This is the important question for folks moving to Jackson Hole. How are you planning on spending your time outside of work? Good question. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of those things you just mentioned. I'm really excited to get more into backcountry skiing, kind of do more do more alpine climbing. Um, those things are a little bit away from me, but yeah, just just working towards doing that. Do a lot of trail running time on the water. I I think that's it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I look forward to hopefully running and climbing together. Me too. All right. That's Hannah Mersbach, our new reporter producer at KHOL. You can contact Hannah with story ideas at hannah at jhcr.org. And that's Hannah with no H. So H-A-N-N-A at jhcr.org. Thanks, Hannah, for your time today. Thank you. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.